I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look at scripture from a focus of how to live a life pleasing to the God of life. Now, two weeks ago in our studies, the focus of the narrative of Genesis changed from the patriarch Jacob to focus now onto his sons, and two sons in particular, Judah and Joseph. In that story two weeks ago, we read of Joseph and his brothers all together. We read of Joseph, who was elevated above his brothers through the choice of his father. He was given authority and honor, even though he technically should have been the last to receive the honors that he was given. And we read of Judah, the one who stood to gain everything, if only he could deceive his father into giving it to him and bypassing Joseph. And why not? After all, his own father had done the same thing, right? Deceived someone in order to take their place in the inheritance. Now, the only way this was going to happen was if Joseph was no longer in the picture. The other brothers, they wanted to either kill Joseph or Reuben wanted to use Joseph to get back into his place as firstborn and inheritor. But for the rest of them, it was best to be rid of Joseph, out of reach of Reuben. But Judah didn't want to kill him. Judah didn't want Joseph dead. And so in a moment of clarity mixed with greed, Joseph was sold into slavery. And in that instant, the family was split. It was fragmented. Joseph going one way into the unknown and shackles, being sent from his place of honor into a place of shame. And Judah leaving his brothers, perhaps due to a feeling of guilt or even shame at his own weakness and his leading in the actions that led to Joseph's departure. One, Joseph, shamed beyond measure. The other, Judah, subject not only to his own shame, but to the addition of guilt. These two brothers, they became at that moment the center of a struggle within the family of Jacob. The one chosen by the father, the other chosen by circumstance, both destined to lead in their own way. Last week, the narrative followed Judah for a time, and we read of what happened to him as he began to start over, to try to forget poor Joseph in the memory of those events. He takes on a new wife. He has kids. He has flocks. He finds loyal friends. He starts a new life. He gets a new start. He begins to engage in an attempt to try to forget his guilt and his shame. Everything for Judah was beginning to look up. He was becoming respectable again. And then his sons died. First one, then the other. And then his wife dies. And in his attempt to cling to the one last thing that he had built, he ends up acting unjustly. In his attempt to overcome his sorrow, he ends up in the arms of an unknown woman. But then, then comes an accusation of sexual immorality on the part of his daughter-in-law, the one that he was blaming for the deaths of his two sons. But it's more than an accusation. It would 
seemed to be an open and shut case because she is pregnant. She had broken the covenant. And in Judah's haste to uphold the terms of the covenant and to be rid of this problematic woman, he declares a sentence on her. Burn her. He passes this judgment based solely on an accusation without evidence, without investigation, and without trial. She was tried in the court of public opinion, and she was guilty. But before he's able to carry out the punishment, his hand is forced, and he is required to examine at least some of the evidence. And with evidence in hand, Judah is forced to make a judgment. And in his judgment, he chooses the truth, even though the truth does nothing but to increase his own personal shame. His failure to show love to this foreign woman, perhaps ripping open the wounds of his own past. I mean, Judah left his family of his own choice. He sought to build his life anew, but he did so under his own power. And in the end, he was left with nothing but greater shame. But I bet his guilt was better. Just like with Joseph, Judah chose the personal shame rather than to kill. He couldn't kill Joseph. He couldn't kill Tamar. He couldn't kill his own children in her womb. And we see in this a pattern of Judah's MO, his modus operandi, is forming his way of acting in response to his own failure. Well, this week the story returns back to Joseph, the one who had shame heaped upon him by others. Now, he himself, he's not guilty of anything other than perhaps being a brat. He's taken from his family by the actions of others. He's taken from the honored position of favored son and thrust into the shameful position of slave in a foreign land. And one of the primary differences that we read between Joseph and Judah is that Judah attempted to gain honor in his own power in order to escape his shame, and he ended up with shame. Joseph, on the other hand, had shame heaped upon him, and he accepted and worked within his shameful position, and he was rewarded. Rewarded how? Rewarded by slowly gaining honor, status, and position in his new life. But then comes an accusation, and a judgment is made without investigation, and Joseph ends up worse off than when he started. So let's read this chapter of Genesis, and then dig into the parallel themes presented in these two chapters of Genesis back to back in these two sons of Jacob. Genesis 39 And Yosef had been taken down to Mitzrayim, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, a Mitzrayim, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And it came to be that Hashem was with Yosef, and he became a prosperous man, and was in the house of his master, the Mitzrayim. And his master saw that Hashem was with him, and that Hashem made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Yosef found favor in his eyes, and served him, and he appointed him over his house, and gave into his hand all that he had. And it came to be from the time that he appointed him over his house, and all that he had, that Hashem blessed the Mitzrayim's house for Yosef's sake. And the blessing of Hashem was on all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left in Yosef's hand all that he had, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. And Yosef was handsome in form and handsome in appearance. And after these events it came to be that his master's wife lifted up her eyes to Yosef and said, Lie with me. And he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has given into my hand all that he has. No one is greater in his house than I. And he has not withheld whatever from me, but you, because you are his wife. 
And how shall I do this great evil and sin against Elohim? And it came to be as she spoke to Yosef day by day, that he did not listen to her, to lie with her, to be with her. And it came to be on a certain day when Yosef went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And it came to be when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it came to be when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me, and he fled, and he went outside. And she kept his garment with her until his master came home. And she spoke to him these same words, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it came to be, as I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. And it came to be, when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me according to these words, that his displeasure burned. Then Yosef's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the sovereign's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. But Hashem was with Yosef and extended loving kindness to him, and he gave him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And the prison warden gave into the hand of Yosef all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there was his doing. The prison warden did not look into any point that was under Yosef's hand, because Hashem was with him, and whatever he did, Hashem made it prosper. So as this chapter begins, Joseph, in chains, in shame, has arrived in Egypt. It's here that Joseph is purchased by a man of station, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And the text specifically calls Potiphar an Egyptian. Now this little aside, it gives us a pointer that this event may have occurred during the time of the Hyksos kings in Egypt. Who were the Hyksos? Well, the Hyksos were a group of Semites descended from Shem, from Noah, who had settled in and conquered and ruled over Egypt for several centuries, beginning around 1650 BC. So why is this important? Well, because if this is true, then Pharaoh at this point in the story may not have been Egyptian at all, not a descendant of Canaan, but rather a Hyksos, a Shemite, a relative to Joseph. Now, there are several other pointers throughout the upcoming chapters that uphold this idea, but the first is that little phrase that occurs here in verse 1. And this won't be all that important this week, but it will come into play several weeks from now. So I really wanted to point it out at this time. Now, interestingly, even though Pharaoh may not have been Egyptian, but rather in the same line from Noah as Jacob, the captain of his guard, was Egyptian. It may be that Potiphar was even the highest-ranking Egyptian in Egypt at this time. All others over him may have been Hyksos or Semites. And this may explain some of those political maneuvering that, that occurs throughout the rest of the story of Joseph. And it may also explain why the Pharaoh in the days of Moses is so antagonistic to the Hebrews. Because that Pharaoh was Egyptian. And it's likely that this Pharaoh was not now, regardless, let's save any further speculation on this for future lessons. For now, let's return to this story and pick up there. So Joseph was taken into Potiphar's house, and he was entrusted with a little. And in verse 2, we read that Hashem was with Joseph. Now, we usually take this to mean that God descended down from the heaven and blessed Joseph despite himself. But if we look at the word that's translated as with, 
we'll find that when this word is used in this way, it's speaking of being in relationship. And relationship is a two-way street. Joseph had a relationship with Hashem. And in that relationship, Joseph proved himself to be capable and honest image bearer. And God blessed him even in his shameful position. Now, Joseph had no guilt from anything that had transpired. He was persecuted simply for being the chosen of the father. That's the theme we see all throughout. And I mean, you go back to the third lesson of this entire thing in Genesis 4 in Cain and Abel. This theme of being persecuted because you're being favored by someone. It's all over from one end of scripture to another. And we see it right here in the story of Joseph. So let's stop and consider for a moment when you're hurt, when you are attacked, shamed, or even simply made fun of by others, how do you respond? Do you accept the shame and do your best to model Hashem into the world despite the shame that the world is pouring on your head? Do you blame God for your situation? Do you allow how others treat you to damage your relationship with the Most High? And do you remain true to Him? I know that in the past for myself, when I've had circumstances go against me, I've allowed these thoughts to cross my mind. I've asked myself, what's the point of worshiping, of serving the God of heaven if I don't gain anything for it? If I simply end up always in need and in shame and at the bottom? And these thoughts, they have beset me, and even more recently than I would even like to admit. But then I'm continually reminded by Scripture itself that service to God is not about what I get out of it, but it's all about what He gets out of my service, the glory and honor that He receives. I don't worship God to elevate myself. That's contradictory, and it's a sign of a double mind. It is up to me to be faithful, despite my own circumstances, to be with God and to have God with me to be in relationship, not just him towards me, blessing me. And that is where many end their walk with God, with those thoughts of what am I owned? What can I gain? What do I get from this, from him? But relationship is a two-way street. We can never forget our own part in relationship, which is faithfulness, obedience, and giving of honor. Now, we know from the text that Joseph gave Hashem honor in Egypt. He spoke of Hashem to Potiphar. How do we know? Because Potiphar, the Egyptian, he recognized that Joseph, even in his state of shamefulness and slavery, was being blessed by Hashem. Not just any God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph's own father, Jacob. And if Potiphar knew of Hashem and knew that Joseph was with Hashem and Hashem was with Joseph, how could Potiphar have known this? Joseph must have told him. He must have told him, I serve Hashem, the creator of all things. Even in his shame at the lowest point of his life, Joseph remained true to God. He did not think that his low station and humility brought God down that it somehow reflected less on God if he himself was in shame. Now, Joseph may have been tempted to ask, what's in it for me? But even if he did ask that question, he settled on the answer of, 
what does it really matter? God had given him a vision of what was to come, and then the opposite had happened. Now, as something that we've explored before, it's up to God to make that vision come true. Joseph understood that he must simply remain true to his God and that he must not grasp for what God has promised. In doing so, in being true to God, Joseph stood out from any of the others that served in Potiphar's house, and he was raised to a position of power. Because in his shame, in his humiliation and persecution, he was faithful. He remained true. He remained in relationship despite what life had thrown at him. And Joseph was given charge of Potiphar's house to the point where Potiphar didn't even question what he owned. As long as he had food on his table, he knew his household was in good hands. And that's a trait of Joseph that should not be overlooked. Joseph was trustworthy in Potiphar's household. Potiphar knew that Joseph could be trusted to honor his master, just as Joseph gave honor to his God. And it's in this place of newfound comfort and trust and authority that Joseph had gained through his own faithfulness to Hashem that he is cast down once again, further down, further into shame. And once again, it would be easy for Joseph to complain. Where were you, God, when I was being falsely accused? You gave me this position and this power, and then it was ripped away from me. And I'm now even more humiliated than I was before. I was simply a slave before, but now, not only am I a slave, I'm a prisoner. And shame has been heaped upon shame, and lower and lower in this downward spiral to the bottom. How easy it would be to succumb to dark thoughts and depression at this turn of events, to wallow in self-loathing, self-recrimination, to curse God for the circumstances of his life cast down from his honored position in a family that was chosen by the God of the universe. And now, not only is he a slave, he's a slave and a prisoner in a country that had been cursed by Noah. Now, I can hear his cries now because these have been my own cries at various times in my life. Where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? Have you left me to rot and to die in shame? No. Through it all, Hashem was with Joseph. In the darkness, as depression closed in, as everything that Joseph had worked for was tossed into the trash bin of history, wallowing with rats in the dungeon, cast away and forgotten, Hashem was with Joseph in this place. And Joseph was with Hashem. How did Joseph respond in these instances? He remained faithful. And Hashem remained with Joseph. And in prison, he showed him chesed. Now, in Joseph's previous position in Potiphar's house, we're not told that he was shown chesed by God. It's simply stated that God was with him, only with. But now, here in this dungeon, now the text states that Joseph had Hashem's chesed. What's that word you keep saying? Chesed. It's hard to say. It's got that guttural sound in the back of the throat. But what is that word? 
In many translations, this word is translated as mercy or kindness or loving kindness or loving commitment. Uh, the idea of chesed encompasses all of these ideas, but it's not limited to these. In my opinion, after studying through this word and how it's used all through scripture, I think chesed is perhaps best translated as action that demonstrates loyalty to a covenant. I don't know, that's a, it's a whole idea expressed in this one word. But it's the action that one takes out of loyalty to a covenant. God was not only with Joseph, but was loyal to Joseph. Loyal according to the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now this lesson that we see from Joseph is one that is extremely difficult to learn. Our circumstances will at times get worse. We will be persecuted. We will be shamed. We will be brought low. We can be brought low in our shame as happens with Joseph, or we can be brought low in guilt as Judah was. But what do we do when this happens? Should we wallow in our shame and our lowliness? Should we wallow in our guilt, our failure and our own incompleteness? Or, or can we remain in relationship and actively work to remain faithful to God as he remains faithful to us. Because the fact is, if you are his, he will remain faithful to you despite the difficulties of your circumstances, regardless of what those circumstances are. And this lesson is essential for each of us to remember. Because last chapter and this chapter, they work together to explore these ideas back to back and to give us clues of how to deal with things like shame and guilt. But that's not the only lesson that these chapters teach. So let's return back to Joseph and Potiphar's house. Now Joseph has just been handed the keys to the manor. He's been told, I put you in charge by Potiphar. He's young, he's intelligent, he's handsome, and he's got a measure of authority now. He is favored by God, obviously. I'm sure he's a slave, but now he's a slave with honor, and that was not a position to be looked down upon in the ancient Near East. A slave with authority. Now Potiphar, this man with power and authority himself, Potiphar had a wife. She was what we would call a cougar today. A woman who preys on young men because of her position of power, her authority, and her own desirableness. Now I find it highly likely that she had pursued young men before and gotten away with it proverbially inviting the pool boy into her bed while her husband was away and concerned with other matters. I mean, who would deny her? Or was it the position that Joseph was given that encouraged her to approach him? Is she saying in her mind, well, Potiphar has given Joseph everything else. I mean, he might as well have me too. But only a man with integrity only a man who was more concerned with his covenant with God than any earthly pleasure would turn down such an offer. And it is this that Joseph uses as an excuse when she approaches him. He says, yeah, I've been given a lot of power in your husband's household, but I haven't been given you. You were reserved for him alone. And then he says, how shall I do this great evil and sin against God? He doesn't say, how shall I sin against Potiphar? Though, had he given in, it would have been a sin against Potiphar. He doesn't say, how can I sin against you, Potiphar's wife? 
although agreeing with her, would certainly have been a sin against her. Joseph recognizes that doing this would be a sin against God, a sin against the God who had been with him and who had cared for him. It would be that sin of presumption of power, authority, and honor that had not been granted by God. In taking her, he would have stepped outside of God's blessing and directly into a curse had he given in and partaken of this forbidden fruit, so to speak. And yet, his refusal caused Potiphar's wife to feel shame herself. In his desire to remain true to the God of his fathers, he caused a bit of shame on one who was outside of the covenant. Now, this wasn't a true shame. It was a perceived shame of rejection. The rejection in a woman who had likely never been rejected before. Suddenly, the most promising prospect in years is refusing her advances. And she feels shamed by him. How dare he turn me down? Well, she is going to get even. And then, unfortunately, he gives her the chance. No witnesses, his robe in her hand, and him running through the house without his clothes. And she turns the tables. She accuses him of doing what she had been attempting to get him to do all along. Now, in 1971, a book was written by a man named Saul Alinsky. Now, this book was billed as a primer for how to create social change through grassroots community organization. His stated goal in this book was to unite the have-nots of society and to equip them to gain political, economic, and social standing that was being denied to them. Now, the book is divided into 10 chapters, and each chapter outlines a different technique that can be used to organize people against their oppressors. Sounds great, right? Name of the book, Rules for Radicals. Problem. The rules that he defines, they're more concerned with an outcome over methods, and he proposes some very underhanded and divisive courses of actions. Because the first thing that a radical must do is to define their opponent and then demonize them. Turn the opposing group into an enemy, not just a personal enemy or idea, but an enemy of the people an enemy of progress, an enemy of justice. And then propaganda and damaging rhetoric is to be leveraged through whatever means possible to bring down the opponent. Now, one of the ways that this is accomplished among many underhanded and downright evil methods that he lines out in this book is to accuse your enemy of doing the underhanded, illegal, or immoral things that you yourself are engaged in. If you are spying for a third party, accuse the enemy of spying for that same third party. That way, when it comes out that it's actually you who's doing the bad thing, the impact is lessened because the people have already expended all their vitriol on your innocent opponent, and the taint of the accusation will always be with them. Now, this book has been used successfully in many ways, and this tactic has been demonstrated to be hugely successful over and over again. Accuse your enemy of what you are guilty of. The accusation will smear their reputation and they will be unable to recover. 
And when it comes to threatening your reputation, the impact will be much less than the impact that it had on your opponent, that the mere accusation has had. You, the accuser, you come out on top no matter what happens. And in a way, this is what is happening in this narrative. Potiphar's wife, she's the one who's engaged in sexual immorality. And when there arose a person that she identified as an opponent, one who knew her shame and would not participate, who would not become a co-conspirator against her husband, her greatest weapon was to leverage an accusation of the very thing that she herself was guilty of. Thus, you ruin your enemy and you protect your own shame. And when it comes out that it was you all along, well, who cares at that point? Your enemy is gone and all of that anger has been expended on them. Now, this is one of the reasons that it's so vitally important that we do not believe accusations against any person. And I mean any person. This practice of unfounded accusations has been weaponized and it is being used against people all the time in the modern age. And an accusation without a witness is meaningless. An accusation with just one witness is not to be believed at all. Even with two witnesses, before you believe it, there must be an investigation and then there must be a trial. The Torah is very clear about all of this. And this is part of our role as image bearers, to act in justice and to do what is right. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. But even before that, learn how to do justice. And justice in God's sight does not mean conviction. Now in Deuteronomy, we're given many examples of how judges are supposed to act and how to determine justice in criminal cases. Whatever you do, Never does it say to believe a single accuser, because a single accuser may simply be someone looking to grind an axe to damage their perceived opponent. Now, if there are two accusers, only then do the wheels of justice begin. Still, you don't believe the word. And once again, we are not to simply take the word of the accusers, but to begin an investigation at that point. Deuteronomy 17, 4-7 says, And it has been made known to you, and you have heard, and have searched diligently. Then see, if true, the matter is confirmed that such an abomination has been done in Israel. Then you shall bring out to your gates the man or woman who has done this evil matter, and you shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. At the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is to die be put to death. He is not put to death by the mouth of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and the hand of all the people last. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The witnesses themselves are to be the ones to cast the first stone. And that that's really important. That's something we'll get to much later. Deuteronomy 13, 14 says, Then you shall inquire, search out, ask diligently, and see if the matter is true and established that this abomination was done in your midst. Now, these commands, they're given in connection to specific scenarios, but they lay out guidelines for how to engage in honest judgment. Guidelines that Potiphar did not follow. Guidelines that Judah did not follow. Two witnesses, then investigate, 
find evidence, inquire, search out, and establish the accusation as truth. Then it's up to the witnesses to carry out the punishment that's being prescribed. At every step of the process, there is to be a check against even the possibility of guilt resting on a person who is innocent. Every opportunity is to be given to allow the person to be exonerated. They are not to be tried in the court of public opinion, and they are most certainly not to have mob justice enacted against them. Exodus 23, 1 and 2. Do not bring a false report. Do not put your hand with the wrong to be a malicious witness. Do not follow a crowd to do evil, nor bear witness in a strife so as to turn aside after many, to turn aside what is right. And do not favor a poor man in his strife. Mob justice is the exact opposite of true justice. Accusations are nothing more than gossip. And accusations of injustice against anyone without proof are not to be tolerated. There's one who accuses the brethren without proof. Zechariah 3, 1-2 And he showed me Yehoshua, the high priest, standing before the messenger of Hashem, and Satan standing at his right hand to be an adversary to him. And Hashem said to Satan, Hashem rebuke you, Satan. Hashem, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? The one who stood against Yehoshua, the high priest, was Satan, who accused him. And Revelation 12.10 says, And I heard a loud voice in the heaven saying, Now have come the deliverance and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers who accused them before our God day and night has been thrown down. Accusations are not to be entertained without some proof. It is the adversary who accuses and desires justice, in air quotes, to be enacted immediately. Instead, we must remain patient in our judgment. We must find evidence, and we must judge fairly and righteously. John 7.24 says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. When did Yeshua make this statement? He made it when he was being accused of breaking the Sabbath because he healed a man. On the surface, it would seem as if Yeshua was sinning. He's not keeping the law, right? He's profaning, in air quotes, the Sabbath. But then Yeshua points out the hypocrisy of their own judgment. You yourselves, you circumcise on the Sabbath in order that the Torah may not be broken. So how much more should we build the kingdom of God on the Sabbath? How much more should we bring life to the world on the Sabbath? And healing is one way of doing that. How many of us would shake our heads at Yeshua and tisk tisk him because he didn't keep the Sabbath in the way that we do? He didn't understand it in our way. This is not what it means to keep the Sabbath. No other way is permissible but the way that I have defined for myself. And when we do this, when we judge others for not doing it our way, are we not simply acting like the Pharisees and looking down our own self-righteous noses, judging based on faulty definitions of right and wrong, judging others for breaking a command or being disobedient, but perhaps simply breaking the command in a different way than you yourself also break the command in a more most literal sense? 
We must always reserve judgment, especially when it's just our personal disapproval of another. And this applies at all times. This applies when our own mind accuses our brethren without proof. When we assume the worst about another. When we think we saw something. When we see something and then assume that we have all the facts. The very first thing that we have to do is we have to examine ourselves for the very thing that we are accusing of. Because it is too easy to cast a stone without entering into self-reflection. We often engage in what Saul Alinsky described without knowledge of it. Accusing others of what we ourselves are guilty of. Taking our own personal guilt and shame and making it the fault of another. And last week we saw Judah do this. He accepted an accusation against Tamar for breaking the covenant. But it was he himself who had broken the covenant that he had made with her. He was the one who was guilty, and he cast that guilt on her. Now this week, it's Potiphar's wife making an accusation for the same reason. She is engaged in sexual immorality, and yet making an accusation against an innocent man of that same sexual immorality. Our modern society tells us to hashtag believe all women. Accusations of sin in others are paraded across our television screens, but many of them are then proven to be false. The apology is hidden and the damage is done. We as people of God, we should be the place where accusations come to die. When someone accuses another for some misdeed, ignore it. The enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, and divide based on ill-founded accusations. It's up to us to judge righteously. And at the same time, we must always be vigilant of our own thoughts of accusation against others. When we look down on others, when we blame others for our own guilt and shame, we are to be people of justice. And God's standard of justice is that without proof, even simply entertaining an accusation is itself committing an act of injustice. In today's political and social climate, this is as important as it ever was. All you have to do is look at the latest headlines, and you'll find these accusations spread throughout. Injustice is not only something that we are to project out into the world. It is one thing that we need to practice internally, within ourselves. 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. I would add, do not entertain an accusation against anyone, anyone at all, friend or foe, without two or three witnesses, and then you only entertain the accusation. You don't make the accusation the truth. Too often when we recognize that we've been wrong before, we become self-righteous. We begin to look down on those who are different, who are where we just were. And when we do so, we become at best an accuser. It's not a good thing to be without proof. At worst, we become an accuser of the brethren. When we become an accuser of the brethren, whose image are we projecting? Consider that. Now, I'm not saying that if you witness something that needs to be reported, don't report it. Please, please report it, but hold off on judgment. Imagine you were in Potiphar's house, and you witnessed Joseph running from Potiphar's house naked, witnessed the shrieks of Potiphar's wife. You are an eyewitness to this. 
what judgment do you run to? What is your conclusion? Even being an eyewitness can lead to the wrong conclusion. Listen to both sides. Hold off on judgment until you can be sure that justice will be served. This chapter has within it two very important lessons. There's a lot more in here, but these are two things that were really impressed on me. And that's honesty and righteous judgment and integrity and faithfulness in the midst of persecution. Both of these are exemplified in this story of Joseph. They're both painfully difficult to live out in our own lives. So as you go forward in life, begin to practice these things. Righteous judgment and faithfulness and persecution. Your circumstances should never determine your obedience and your loyalty to the covenants of God. And lay off the judgment. Lay off the casting of stones. If you are not a witness, you don't get to cast those stones. Wait. Be patient. Allow all of the facts to come out before declaring judgment. With these two things in concert, we can continue to grow in our understanding of what it means to Dereshchai. To seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.